Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. In this special holiday edition of Same Surgeon, Different Light, brought to you by the SDS Workforce on Diversity and Inclusion, the hosts are hosted. Dr. Tom Varghese and I interview each other. I give you a warning. There will be a lot of sarcasm and dry humor. Dr. Thomas Varghese Jr. is Executive Medical Director, Interim, and Chief Value Officer at Huntsman Cancer Institute. He is the head of the section of Joan Thoracic Surgery and the Program Director of the Integrated Thoracic Surgery Residency and Cardiothoracic Surgery Fellowship and a professor tenure-track in the Department of Surgery at the University of Utah. In this episode, we discuss Tom's journey from India to the Windy City. He reveals which Chicago baseball team he roots for. He discusses his thoughts on leadership and how he leverages social media for good, as well as other fascinating topics. Please enjoy, and happy holidays. Welcome, Tom. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic, David. Uh, yeah. Great honor again to connect again. Yeah, thanks for joining this podcast, Same Surgeon, Different Light. It's uh, always great to, to speak to you and, and get your insights uh, into cardiothoracic surgery. And you and I have known each other for so long. It's, it's amazing. It's, uh, uh, you know, you, for the listeners, even though we're doing this podcast right now, trust me, David and I have had some lengthy, soulful conversations <laughs> around these topics. So it's great to share, share some words. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're filming this, or not filming, but we're recording this podcast during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, how are you holding up in Utah? Yeah, it's, uh, we're hanging in there. I mean, I think that uh, just like everywhere across the country right now, um, sadly, all the cases are rising. But I, I do think that there's a renewed sense of hope. I mean, I think even though the pandemic has been really trying and it's been so long, the fact that these vaccines have been developed in record time uh, and we're hoping by the time that uh, this episode airs that people will be actually receiving those vaccines. I mean, that's probably one of the best news that we've received in a long period of time. And it's kind of like there is some light and there's a possibility of getting back to our normal lives, uh, you know, traveling, connecting with each other, sharing experiences with our loved ones. I mean, each and every one of us, and I'm sure you as well. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, connecting with my loved ones in person. And of course, I enjoy traveling. So it's something to look forward to as well. Now, you wear many hats at University of Utah. You know, you're the, you're the head of your section of general thoracic surgery. And also, uh, you're the chief quality officer, correct? I am. I mean, our ver version of it is we call it the chief value officer at the Huntsman yeah. Cancer Institute. And uh, uh, currently, I also have two other titles. I'm the program director of our uh, uh, training program. We have both a traditional CT surgery fellowship. And this year, we're in the match for the first time because we're just starting an integrated thoracic program. And then um, about a, a little over a year ago, I, I was named the interim executive medical director here at the Huntsman Cancer Institute as well. So yes, no, you are correct. I wear a lot of hats and privileged so, you know, to do so. How are you, you know, you know, talk with your cancer hat, 
you know, how are you providing that high level cancer care during this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question, David. Uh, I think we know, um, we'll take the, uh, our listeners back in time. Uh, on January 8th of 2020, um, you know, it actually expanded from January 6th to about January 8th. The front page news and the biggest news on CNN was what? Record drop in cancer deaths. Uh, and a lot of it was driven by the improvements in lung cancer deaths. So if you look track back over the previous 20 years, um, you know, steadily across every single cancer, especially lung cancer, you'd had uh, dramatic improvements, uh, more survivors. And all of that was actually the result of what I like to affectionately call the public health model. You know, what, that, what does that mean? It's a multimodal mechanism or framework for earlier detection of cancers, so robust screening protocols, improving overall population health, uh, easier access, you know, timely intervention, multidisciplinary care, care which is discussed in tumor boards, um, better techniques. I mean, on a surgical world, you and I have lived the experience where, you know, even in our training, it was like almost like the last vestiges of the open era, the earlier, early onset of the minimally invasive era. And now you and I are both robotic surgeons who use that as part and parcel of our clinical practice. And so even better surgical techniques, uh, you know, so many things were the result of that. And naturally this catastrophic crisis has disrupted many of those things to a large extent. If you look across the country right now, the vast majority of cancer screening programs are down about 10 or 15%. Yeah. So is that going to result in an epidemic of later diagnosed stage cancers? That's, that's kind of the things that keep us up with like, And so a lot of the discussions we're having right now is not only navigating our current crisis of getting patients in, you know, we're fortunate we live, we work in a matrix organization where the cancer center is up on the, uh, on a hill uh, and we work very closely with our University of Utah health partners. And so our COVID patients are actually admitted and cared for down there. But by having that strong relationship, as long as we have enough bed capacity, enough trained staff and everything, that allows us to keep operations going up the hill. And of course, the one of the concerns right now with the rising numbers is at some point, do we have to do another pause in the system? Hopefully not. But that, that's kind of the model that we have there. But in the back of my mind that keeps many of us in the world of the cancer up and awake is how do we make up for those few weeks or several months where systems across the country had to shut down just yeah. to get things in place? Like, how do we reach back out to the communities? You know, in, we cover the Mountain West region, which is our catchment area is about 1,200 miles. And so like, how do I connect back to the communities in Elko, Nevada, Rock Springs, Wyoming, or Rexburg, Idaho, or Jackson, Wyoming, uh, you know, how, Carson, Nevada, how do we connect back to them to make sure that, you know, one, provide that safe environment where we can do the screening and, you know, diagnosis and access to care, but at the same time, do it in a safe way as we're navigating a COVID pandemic. I, I think that's where we're at right now, but uh, it's a long-winded answer to the question you asked about how do you keep yeah. going? But there's, there's a lot of different elements that, that come into play as well. You know, if I'm a, a sort of a young trainee, you know, or medical student looking at cardiothoracic surgery and the, you know, the ability to learn a technician and, and operate, and I, and I see you with, with all these leadership positions, 
and are, are you a unicorn or <laughs> or you know if, if I go into cardiothoracic surgery, am I going to get the skill set to 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 lead a cancer center? Yeah, you know it's a, it's a great question. Um, it's uh it's it's a combination of different uh, perspectives. I mean, I've had a very unique life, um, and uh, and then David, you and I, since we both did our CT surgery training at the University of Michigan, we share several mentors who maybe have been considered unicorns themselves. Um, but where is the core element? Where does it all start? It all starts with the care of the individual patient. That's where it all starts from. Like the leadership titles I have are the fact that I've been privileged to given the opportunities to do these things, but essentially the message our CEO, Mary Becker, Dr. Mary Beckerly here at the Huntsman Cancer Institute turned to me when, when, we, uh, when I was appointed to many of these leadership roles. Her biggest thing is what you're doing in thoracic surgery, I want done at a system level up and down throughout the cancer center. That's the reason why I'm here. And so it, uh, for, for me, it goes back to as a cardiothoracic surgeon and as I was a trainee, I was always looking to see you know, it's the delivery of the care, but how can we do better? You know, uh, you know, how do we move the things better? Like, it's great that we're doing this there, but what are the elements that are needed to do even better the next time around? That every single patient and every single experience, good and bad, has been this continuous learning of, uh, improvement opportunity uh, to, keep, to keep things go, going. Um, and it takes a little bit of courage. I mean, I, I think one of my favorite quotes is from uh, Maya Angelou, which she, you know, and she's got a lot of phenomenal quotes mm. out there. But the one I really resonate with me, she she says, you know, without courage, we cannot practice any other virtue with consistency. We can't be kind, true, merciful, generous, or honest. And where I take that to mean is, you know, it, it's so easy to just remain status quo. You know, it, it, it really takes courage to say that I, I want to do this, but I want to do it even better. You know, as a surgeon, I mean, and I know I'm, I'm you know, preaching to choir because I, I know your career as well, David. Uh, you know, you and I are like-minded, you know, we're brothers in the, in the sense that we both think the same way. Yes, we're doing a phenomenal job now, but what is it going to take to do even a better job, you know, five years, 10 years from now? How do we do that? in the care of our patients. So uh, the question really came about is how did I end up in these leadership opportunities? It was really that having the courage to be very consistent, to be to, every single thing. Did I do everything possible? Did our team do everything possible? Where were the opportunities that we could do better? And then being, having that courage to be consistent in good times and bad, um, and, you know, and that, that's really, and again, that's, that's where I, I, I get that from Dr. Maya Angelo and so that, that, that courage to be consistent. But, right. uh, but yes, I believe CT surgery is the absolute best training for leadership because think about what we need to do. We take on high risk patients. If we make a mistake, oftentimes we're talking about mortality or serious morbidity. Um, and you, there's got to be a touch of arrogance to say that, yes, I can defy the odds and do better. You have to have innovation right there. You have to have consistency. You have to be meticulous in attention to detail and deliver the best. Every one of those traits 
translates across into leadership titles in the healthcare system, in my belief. You know, it's fascinating. You, you see, um, um, you know, almost this bimodal experience of cardiothoracic surgeons as department chairs uh, and in high level leadership positions, whether it's sort of the Bob Higgins, Von Starnes uh, 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 generation or um, sort of that next upcoming generation like the Joe Cheekways and the Gorov Alawandis and, and uh, Joseph Wu's uh, and folks like yourself who are really- <laughs> I, you, you, just, you just put me in the company of some amazing leaders in our world. Uh, honored to be, be well, there, but- well, Somebody uh, has to serve the hors d'oeuvres, right? At the party. But, <laughs> somebody has to serve the hors d'oeuvres. The guy, um, thanks, but- <laughs> these, are high, these are high level, these are high level hors d'oeuvres. These are the, yeah, high level hors d'oeuvres to, the, to, uh, yeah, to my, brother, my brothers but, and sisters there. So that's great. <laughs> but it shows sort of like that, whether it's the heart team or the multidisciplinary cancer tumor board team, our ability to sort of get the team together. Exactly. And, and and I think not only get the team together, David, I think looking beyond the silos, like if, you know, I would say in many respects, especially you and I as cancer surgeons, we have much more in common with our interventional pulmonologists, our medical oncologists and our radiation oncologists uh, than we do to, uh, you know, potentially some other branches of surgery because we live with them and, you know, we're with them every single step of the way, um, you know, and so the multidisciplinary teamwork, you know, is that like that pit crew in a formula one racing type of concept where yes, each one of you have your individual skill sets and your background, but it's really the team that constantly is seamlessly moving and trying to get, uh, you know, better talking about pit crews. I think I saw a video clip on YouTube the other day where they had like two pit crews, one from the 1980s and one from right now changing a tire. Mm. And back then it took them like a couple of minutes and now it's like seconds. <laughs> it's yeah. it's yeah. amazing. If you, it, 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 that stark visual imagery uh, can really translate out to Think about when you and I were in training, we used to talk about like indications and contraindications to surgery. And I laugh now. It's like, is there a contraindication to surgery nowadays? <laughs> it just seems like we can, we can take care of so many more complex patients, but it, it's amazing how we keep moving forward. You know, speaking of sort of, you know, how things change, you know, over the years and you know, look at that meme, the internet meme, and we're going to talk about your social media prowess <laughs> later on, but that, that meme, how it started and, and how's it going. You know, your background at first glance seems kind of that classic American dream immigrant story. But then as you look further into it, there's really quite a bit of nuance and, and uniqueness to it. Um, there is. Born in, born in India. I was born in India. Uh, and then I came to the United States when I was a year old. You're correct. And your dad uh, didn't see you in person. No, he didn't. Uh, so my dad is uh, an industrial engineer by background, and uh, he got a student visa to come to the United States. Um, and back then, when immigration rules were unbelievably strict, I mean, you think it's bad now, you should have seen it back then. It was one of those things where it was like, take it or leave it. And so my mom was pregnant with me, and uh, my dad got the student visa, and they were like, well, take it or leave it. And he, he decided for the benefit of our family to come here by himself. I uh, initially landed in New York and then eventually ended up in Chicago. 
Um, and uh, in those days to get a green card, uh, not only after I was born, I had to literally wait till my first birthday to get my, my green card. So my mom had already gotten uh, her green card, but then they were waiting, literally waiting for me to get my green card. And so I arrived here in the United States, uh, you know, uh, a few, a couple months after my first birthday. Um, And that was, you're right. That was the first time my dad physically saw me. I mean, again, you have to think back in the days, there's no virtual technology. There's no videos, black and white photos, landlines where it was like almost impossible to get a connection to, uh, to, uh, to India. And uh, it's, it's admirable. I mean, in many respects, Um, but you know, it's a, it's a classic immigrant story. I mean, there are so many immigrants in the United States where their families started that way, but you're, you're absolutely right, David. Uh, Yeah. My dad didn't physically see me until I was a year old. Now you grew uh, up in the suburbs of Chicago. I did, yeah. We uh, we uh, we first part was in the city of Chicago, and then we went out to the suburbs, uh, Westmont, and then eventually Hinsdale, where I was uh, as so, well. So Cubs or 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 Chicago? So my family is interesting. I'm a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. My younger yeah. brother is a diehard Chicago White Sox fan, um, and it's gotten some heated conversations over the years. And everything. I adore yeah. both teams, but yeah, I, I'm a Cubs fan though. And then this sort of classic uh, immigrant story sort of jumps the Hollywood rails because <laughs> in high school, you moved back to India. Correct. After my sophomore year in high school, my family moved back. So my, my dad is the youngest male in the family. Uh, he's the youngest male of seven kids. Um, and by tradition, at least in our culture in southern India, um, by tradition, usually the youngest male takes care of the parents. And so my dad's brothers and sisters had all started immigrating over here to the United States. And my grandmother was sick back there. And so for my dad, he thought that the best way to be nearby there in India and everything was for our family to move back. But yeah, you're correct. That's the part of the story, which is so different from everybody else. So I was an immigrant to this country and then I turned around and became an immigrant back to India. Um, Yeah, you you say, um, that you heard the phrase, go back to your country, but then you heard that phrase, both in the United States and both in India. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. I, I mean, it, you know, so um, when I was growing up, you have to think about, even though Chicago is a really, really diverse city, in the 70s and early 80s, it was a very, very segregated city. You know, I, you know I went out to the suburbs of Chicago um, and, you know, I, I, I attended Holy Trinity Catholic School, but I was the only colored person in that school till the second colored person, which was my younger brother, joined the school. <laughs> and so it, it took many years. Uh, and then in the early 80s, there was a population explosion and then it became very diverse um, as well. And so you're correct. I mean, I would hear phrases like you need to go back to your country. And I'm sitting there going, I'm an American. That doesn't make any sense. And then when I landed in India, people could tell just by my accent that I have an American accent. And I heard the same phrase, go back to your country. And then I thought, so where exactly do I belong? You know, <laughs> where do I go? Um, and I, it, it was a, a brutal awakening. But at the same time, I'm grateful for that experience because I started to realize that I had to build up the skill sets and rely on myself. I mean, in many ways, uh, and I wouldn't trade the experience in any way, but it was in a really difficult uh, la- landscape. And so 
after my sophomore year in high school, you know, I got admission into college over there, undergrad. Um, and then afterwards, uh, you know, went right into medical school there. And, and in India, the, uh, the, uh, the med schools are the British system, which is, you know, um, a longer training program. So it's about, you know, uh, four and a half, five years. And then since I was on a government scholarship, I had to do a year of service to pay back the government afterwards yeah. as well. But I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, and hence the next part of the story that's coming up as well. So, and you know, you, you touched on your your Michigan background, but you also have a, a rich Northwestern background. You you cite mentors, you know, such as Dave Fullerton and Sadir uh, Sundarisen. And uh, yeah, cor correct. And and so that was the second part. Like I I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, I, I think that uh, you know the reason I went into medical school is uh, I played a lot of basketball. Actually, both here in the United States as well as in India, I played you know up and down. You know I, I'm I'm six foot tall, which is considered really tall for Indian heights. Uh, it was kind of a point of contention with my dad because my dad's like, hey Tom, there's billions of Indians around there. How many professional athletes do you see? you know you, in your mind you're like oh no i'm going to defy the odds and everything yeah, and then you right. quickly realize that you, you reach the limits of your athletic prowess but in, in high school i had knee surgery uh here in the united states before i left um and i was fascinated by the whole aspect of the surgical team and the surgical care and that got me thinking about med school but i knew i wanted to be a surgeon and so even when i was training in india i wanted to be a surgeon and when i looked around the world i thought you know the U.S. is where I want to be. And so that's where, after I finished that year of government uh, service, um, I came back here to the United States. And after my U.S. Assembly boards, um, I, I was fortunate, uh, you know, I matched as a prelim surgical resident at Northwestern. And yeah. Northwestern was amazing. I mean, there were so many tremendous mentors and they gave me the opportunity. I mean, I, I got my foot in the door as a prelim and then proved 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 that I, I belonged, then they converted me to a categorical resident. But you're correct, David. I ended up spending seven years there, actually eight, if you count the three years of research, as well as the five years of clinical training. And that's where, um, as a second year general surgery resident, you know, uh, I rotated, on, actually, as an intern, I rotated on cardiothoracic surgery. And then I came back as a second year general surgery resident, I, I, you know, managing the CBICU. And that's where I ran into Dr. Fullerton and uh, Dr. Sudhir Sundarishan, who became two of my other mentors, in addition to my research mentor, who was Dr. Mike Abacassis. He's a, he was formerly the head of transplant at Northwestern, and he's now the dean at the University of Arizona. He's been an amazing mentor for me over the years. Uh, and so I was very fortunate to connect with some amazing human beings who, who, who saw something in me and you know, reach out and mentored me. And, and that and that started leading my path towards cardiothoracic surgery as well. You know, you know I've, I've mentored quite a few foreign medical graduates in, in my past. And I think one thing that's sort of underappreciated is the difficult journey of the foreign medical graduate. Uh, and uh, especially for those who are really focused on becoming surgeons. And I, and I think uh, many of us don't understand what those individuals are going through. Can, yeah, and you went through it, right? I, I lived through it. Yeah, I went through it, lived through it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's tough because um, every single foreign medical graduate uh, or IMG, international medical graduate, whichever term you use, gets lumped into the same bucket. And then that bucket is considered inferior. 
Um, you know, so for perspective, I mean, uh, the medical school I went to was ranked seventh in the country at the time of my graduation. There are 398 medical schools in India and the government medical school in Tiranam, which is the state ca capital of Kerala down in India, where I'm from, uh, was ranked seventh. And I graduated at the top 10% of my class, but it didn't matter. You know, and uh, even when I started my residency, I had higher board scores than any of my classmates, but it didn't matter. You know, you were still that way. But on the other hand, I I'm grateful for that. Even though it was very, very hard and challenging, one of the lessons I learned is I had to be five times better than the next person. And I don't, I don't know, you know, sometimes, you know, I reflect back and let's say like, what happens if my family hadn't moved back to India? Let's mm -hmm. say I was here. Would I have as much of a worth work ethic or drive uh, if I hadn't gone through that experience? And, and it's tough to say. And so, you know, many of us, you know, even the hard experiences or overcoming failures in your life, uh, oftentimes going through that path probably made, made us a stronger thing. It wasn't easy. It's not something I would ever recommend to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, but at the same time, I, I, I empathize, empathize with the foreign medical graduate and their path is even harder now. You know, there's more visa restrictions now than there have, have been in the last 25 years. Um, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, going through the path of, you know, if you want to go into academic surgery, for example, the advice I give people is, well, the true pathway as a foreign medical graduate is get your foot in the door and start as a prelim surgical resident at an academic program and prove to them that you belong. Uh, that's scary because there's no guarantee that a prelim spot is going to convert into a categorical spot. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and so I totally understand. And, you know, some people are angry about that, you know, that there's a different pathway for foreign medical grads compared to American grads, but I totally understand it. I mean, I, I absolutely every single American grad of a medical school deserves a categorical residency spot. I, I truly believe that. Uh, and the foreign grad, I, I think that there's a difference between having a tougher pathway versus zero pathway. Yeah. And that's the, the, the nuance I, uh, you know, so if somebody comes up and says that there should be zero foreign medical grads here in the United States, I ask them, it's like, where do the vast majority of foreign medical grads after training in the United States, and if they stay in the United States, where do they practice? They practice in rural America. They practice in those uh, places where uh, may or may not be a, as desirable as living in the big city. Well, that they're serving a critical role, give, providing care to, to Americans. And so I hope that if we truly want to be, say that we are the best training ground in the, in the world, that, that by definition, we have to follow the American creed of being an open country and welcoming immigrants to the country that, you know, uh, what's that, what's that song from Hamilton uh, immigrants, they get the job done. I mean, that's really what you're looking for uh, as well. Yeah. And, and it, it, it brings an interesting point about perspective, right? Because if you look at many places within our country, um, the, the way that the challenges and the gaps and disparity in, in healthcare uh, is not that dissimilar from uh, other nations. And when you bring in individuals who experience those other uh, types of healthcare, perhaps they bring perspective in regards to best practices or ways to mitigate disparities and gaps. Uh, and, 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 then, and, the, and the second part of that, David, 
is if you're in an environment that has open arm policy and you welcome the best from around the world, it makes you better as well. It makes your healthcare system better. You know, that competition and the collaboration and opening yourself up, it makes you better. Uh, you know, some of the best experiences I've ever had was from classmates, colleagues, uh, learning together, bonding together in the best training environments. Yeah. Um, and and it, that's the key thing. And so, you know, as we, we know that all the social unrest that we've had recently, uh, you know, to me, uh, it's, it's a critical question to answer. Do you want to be the best? And if the answer is yes, there's no question that diversity, equity, inclusion, justice comes hand in hand with that aspect. If you don't want to be the best, if you want to be mediocre, absolutely, go ahead and come up with some restrictive policies. Yeah. But if you want to be the best, you will embrace uh, you know, all, all the other policies of diversity, equity, justice, and, and inclusion. And as you pointed out before, that requires courage. That requires courage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are not easy pathways. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's so much easier just doing the same thing every single day uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, if you're like, I've, I've already learned what I need to do. I don't need to improve myself. That's a much easier path, the paths that you and I have embarked on uh, over the years. Uh, and it, that it takes courage. Uh, that's the reason why that quote really resonates with me, because even when you're facing uphill battles or you do something that your plan just explodes in your face, it was the stupidest thing that anybody has ever uh, done. It takes courage to come back the next day. Yeah, um, that, that, that's a key thing. Now, one of the courage things that you did or the, the, the things that took courage is that you originally want to be a pediatric surgeon. I did. And then, uh, it sounds like you were disappointed to find out there's no such thing as pediatric thoracic surgery. Correct. Non-cardiac thoracic surgery. No, there's no, yeah, because the, the, the procedure I loved and the, the kids I love taking care of was congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And so I kept asking, I was like, is there any way that I could just do pediatric chest, non-cardiac pediatric chest surgery? Um, and maybe in the future there is, but at least at the time when I was training, the answer was no. So how did you get suddenly, cardiothoracic surgery? What, what, who, who, who bribed you into our, who bribed me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because it, it was pediatric surgery. And then of course, with my research mentor, it was transplant surgery for a period of time, but yeah, it was a combination of Dr. Fullerton and Dr. Sundarison who said, um, you know, Hey, come take a look at this. A lot of things you're interested in. I was worried when I went into the match because, you know, I had done, you know, three years of transplant immunology research, uh, working on models of reactivation of uh, latency and V and, uh, you know, kidney transplants in mice. I mean, that was the models that I was doing research in. I had never done any CT surgery research. I had never even gone to a CT surgical meeting when I went into the match. And so I was literally the outlier in the match where I was like, I don't think anybody knows who the heck I am. Uh, but both Dr. Fullerton and Dr. Sundarison was like, no, people know your background and they know what the research you've done and you're coming from a solid training program at North Northwestern, you'll be fine. And they were right. I mean, uh, and the good thing is, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of my best friends uh, across the world of academic surgery actually came from meeting them on the interview trail. 
you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the Rob Merritt at, at Ohio State or, you know, Jim Huang at uh, Sloan Kettering or Dan Boffa at Yale, all, all these people, the Hushmokadam, all these individuals I met on the interview trail for yeah. surgery. Uh, and so that we, we became very, very close friends afterwards as well. Gaurav Alawadi, as you said, who's the new chair of uh, Michigan. So it, it was yeah. amazing in terms of the journey. Now, you know, the natural progression of any cardiothoracic surgeon is, it just seems natural, is to become social media influencer. Um, <laughs> and the, um, the, the nickname that, that you have achieved is the Kim Kardashian of thoracic <laughs> surgery. So uh, yeah, how did you, you know, obviously you have a, you, you have a Twitter following uh, that's, that's higher than many heads of state uh, in the world. But it, it seems like you use it in a novel way to disseminate your research and other things. How did you get involved in social media and, and how are you using it? Yeah, great story. Uh, so uh, my first academic position was at the, uh, the University of Washington after I graduated from uh, at the University of Michigan and I had great mentors there again, Doug Wood, Ed Ferrier uh, were phenomenal. And my research project that I wanted to do is I was, I had this idea of this concept of, uh, you know, I took a look at what Dr. Warringer had taught you and I about, uh, you know, hey, even in esophageal cancer, you don't need to rush them to surgery. Like you could take a moment to get them off the cigarettes and tune them up. And so that started, you know, in my mind, of, can we do bigger, you know, optimize patients before elective surgery. And so we came up with a strong for surgery program, created that, uh, and that fortunately now is a quality program, the American College of Surgeons. But as part of that, in the early days, you know, it was really, we were coming up with implementation bundles that you can change individual clinical practices, tune them up, but we needed to do a public awareness campaign. And so that was around about the time that I started looking, what are the different mechanisms? And uh, Dr. Heather Evans, who's now vice chair of uh, surgery at, at uh, the University of South Carolina, she was with me. I, I was directing the thoracic surgery program at Harborview and she was one of the trauma surgeons at Harborview. And her office was literally right across the hall from mine. And so Heather had already been on social media and kept telling me, you need to get on this. I know you, you're gonna love this platform. You need to get on this. But to me, the eye-opening event was actually the Boston Marathon bombings. Because afterwards, you know, I was doing the readings and there was an amazing cover of Boston Magazine. And what the cover was, was all the runners got together and made a commitment to say that they're gonna come back next year to run the marathon again. And as a sign of that uh, commitment, what they did is they placed their running shoes in the shape of a heart. And that was the cover of Boston Magazine. And that was tweeted out in social media. So my first tweet uh, in April of 2013 was, using that photo and saying, you know, I, I admire them so much because to me that kind of symbolized a tribe, you know, a group of people from varying different backgrounds coming together around a shared purpose. And I started realizing that maybe there's something to this social media uh, that we could do that. And so I did it intentionally initially aligned with the Strong for Surgery program 
you know, getting information out, connecting with patient advocates, trying to connect with people around this. And then I suddenly realized it's way bigger than that. Um, and so in the early months and early years that, you know, I had a couple hundred followers um, and, you know, we were kind of connecting together. I started getting involved in tweet chats. And then at some point you reach a tipping point, the long, more and more you engage, especially if you come across as an individual who truly contributes to the conversation, that you're not there just to glorify yourself. There's so many amazing people that start connecting. And then the next thing you know, a couple hundred came, a couple thousand came to tens of thousands and, you know, where I am right now uh, as well. And so I kind of like to say that I really played three roles on social media. You know, there I do, you know, create original content and, you know, try to tweet it out there. Um, uh, I, I more often than not, I'm often a curator because I have so many amazing followers that uh, there's, it's always streamlined information coming there. And so I may be able to get information that other people may not be able to see. Um, and, you know, and, you know, sometimes that comes from famous people, like you know, some of the people that follow me and I follow them include, you know, Soledad O'Brien, who was, uh, you know, at CNN, you know, Tay Diggs, who's a Hollywood actor, Ava DuVernay, who's an amazing director, you know, you get famous people like that, but then you also get individuals who are unbelievable patient advocates, the huge tribe that you helped create, uh, David, you know, LCSM, you know, Lung Cancer Social Media, you, you're able to connect with so many different tribes. Uh, and so you're able to curate information and get real-time information out. And then, of course, I hope to serve as an amplifier. And so that's where I, I look at my role, especially in the world of diversity and social justice. So there may be voices out there that people have normally not heard. And I actively look to say, is there, is there an opinion that's out there uh, and, you know, can I amplify that, you know, as well? And as you and I both know, it's that unbelievable ripple effect in terms of getting the messages out there. And so those are kind of the, the three roles that I seek uh, on, on social media as well. But I still believe we're scratching the surface. Um, you know, the, the amazing thing about social media is it's really about establishing your brand. Um, I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that academia has now rallied to it and they realize that wasn't the case in the early days of social media. There were a lot of academic institutions that were threatened by their individual faculty members becoming even more popular than their individual universities. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it, it, times have turned. I, I, I think that uh, people realize the potential um, and, and see a lot of things. And there's so many network, the, the networking opportunities are incredible. The collaboration is phenomenal. Many of these leading uh, you know, scientists and people who are featured on the news uh, uh, about COVID in the public health world, I've had the privilege of meeting in person. Uh, and that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for social media. And so uh, I think it, it, the thing that I really encourage, especially the younger listeners to this podcast, not to say that there's an age thing, but, you know, the younger people, especially at the beginning of their careers, I look at social media and that, that opportunity to really connect uh, as an essential uh key step towards uh, a successful career. Um, you know, and everywhere outside of healthcare has already figured it out. Healthcare is coming along as well. You know, there's that old adage where, you know, you could take a hundred dollar bill, stick it in your college or PhD thesis, and then put it in the your, your college or grad school library and then come back in 20 years and it'll still be there. Um, and there's data that shows that women and um, uh, academics of color are cited less 
yeah. than sort of the traditional old boys network. And, and it seems to me, especially with the thoracic surgery social media network that you know Jessica Luke and you're a part of and Mara Antonoff, uh, it's a way for um, you know, non-traditional academicians to disseminate all the awesome research and evidence-based uh, um, uh, investigation that they do. Absolutely. And it also helps foster uh, opportunities to build collaboration. And so let's talk about an organization that you and I have been critically involved with building, and that's THORN, the Thoracic Health Outcomes Research Network. I mean, when you and I first had this conversation over the back of a napkin, I remember this was in the AATS meeting the last time it was held in Seattle, we were all sitting there trying to figure out why, why, we, why did he do that? Well, you, you and I are both health services researchers, and we realized at the time that we were trying to figure this out that the other surgical specialties were actually, and other medical specialties were doing a great job with health services research. But in CT surgery, other than database research on the STS database, the health services research had lagged behind. And a lot of those opportunities where we didn't see like-minded you know, CT surgeons in our local environment. I mean, they're, as a specialty, we're tiny. And then you take a tiny percentage of a tiny specialty, you make a smaller group. And so again, even using social media, we started forming that collaboration of Thorn, And it became this rich, robust network of health services researchers that started doing collaborative work. And now we've got peer-reviewed publications. We've got scientific meetings. We've got social media following. And lo and behold, it's a collaboration that spans 29 institutions across the United States. And so when the COVID crisis came up, what happened? The American College of Surgeons uh, Commission on Cancer reached out to the Thorn Network to talk about how do you safely triage and make sure that you know, timely intervention for thoracic surgical cases are done. And we were in a position to respond to that that then suddenly became a very, very high power powerful and highly cited publication. And so those type of networking opportunities don't occur if we're relying on the old boy network, right? The old boy network, the downside of the old boy network is, yeah, there's cronyism and everything there. And you think that opens doors, but it's a very, very inefficient model, meaning that you have to put your time in and then 15, 20 years later, that's when the doors start opening if you're one of the chosen few that doesn't work in this world. I mean, where information is coming out so quickly and we need to move fast, we need these opportunities to collaborate. And of course, looking for those voices that have a different viewpoint or something that you haven't even thought of, that's what leads to the advances. I mean, we're talking about mRNA COVID vaccines, which have never been administered on such a massive scale that we're talking about mRNA vaccine technology was something that 10 years ago, people were laughing out of the room and saying it's not a viable technology. And lo and behold, now it's potentially the cure of the pandemic. We need to keep our minds open to the different points. You know, as we come to the close here, and, uh, and you, you, you set this up perfectly, I always ask everyone, you know, where is CT surgery going from your perspective? Yeah. Uh, to me, I think it, it's... Um, a lot of it is based on our tried and true principles of what made CT surgery the great specialty it is right now. You know, 
doing better for each and every single patient, doing things at the level of the system, clinical care pathways, which were first developed in CT surgery, by the way, delivering better quality innovation. You use those as your core principles. We need to get beyond that. I think we have to constantly see search beyond our silos. Does that mean that we have to dismantle some of the structural elements of departments and go more towards service lines? Well, there are many heart centers around the country that act that way right now. Um, does that mean that we have to constantly look for newer metrics where not only are we taking care of the patient at the individual level that we're really being the tip of the spear towards population health. You know, could you imagine if we're managing populations and global groups towards, let's say something like lung cancer screening on that level, and that all of us band together in a collaborative team to take care of all those patients, uh, you know, screening, you know, upkeep. Could there be dedicated medical specialists whose only job is to take care of CT surgical patients, and they're our partners, you know, in this enterprise. You know, we have to embrace digital technology so that it's care is delivered at where the patients are at their home. There's so many different avenues that we can do it, but it do, we don't get there unless we're willing to say, yes, we're doing a good job right now. How can we get better? That to have the courage to say, how do we get better? Where's the next advance? that, you know, is it integrated clinical models where we deliver care, but we have a physical therapist and a dietitian and everybody's sitting right in our clinic. Is it virtual technology? Whatever it is, you need the courage to say, yes, we're doing a good job and it's easy to be, remain the status quo, but how do I get better? How do I change? That, that's where CT surgery is. Well, great, great. Well, you know, Tom, you and I have run the Hunger Games gauntlet together uh, multiple <laughs> times and made it out. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on today and, and discussing your inspiring and insightful story on Same Surgeon in Different Light. And uh, thank you. And, um, you know, stay safe. You know, it's a, this is an honor. It's a, it's been, I've been very privileged and grateful for the journey I've been. It's, it's unconventional. Uh, you called me a unicorn earlier today. That's fine. I wear that badge probably, but it's an honor to uh, have the opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.